Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 16 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be interviewing Jonathan Colton. Uh, he's a singer-songwriter. Sings about a lot of cool geeky topics, such as being a programmer and zombies and mad being, scientists being a mad evil mad scientist in the future and stuff like that if you're not familiar with his music you should definitely go check it out it's i think it's all available for free online that's that's one of the things he did to rise to fame is just he actually released a song for free on online every week and uh you know built up a following that way so that's that's really interesting too and we'll be talking to him about that uh, he also uh, wrote some of the music for Valve Software uh, for Portal. And then stick around after the interview when John and I will be talking about music for geeks and being a geek listening to music and stuff like that. All right, let's get Jonathan on the phone. Hello. Uh, hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey, how are you guys? Good. Thanks for joining us on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, first of all, uh, what sort of geeky interests did you have growing up? I was always into uh, video games and computers. You know, I had, uh, I remember my dad coming home with Pong, that first home edition of Pong. And, you know, from there I had every console that came out up until now. So, <laughs> that's been pretty consistent. You know, and that was the sort of sidetrack of that was computers in general. You know, I learned to write basic on a... On a um, Radio Shack TRS-80. You know, I had a Commodore 64 and, you know, that whole line of stuff. So those are really the, the main things for me. Uh, did you make robots or something like that? <laughs> Not when I was a kid, no. That, was, that came later in life as an adult. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, for a while I was building uh, hobby robots from kits and that sort of thing. In addition to the video games, like, did you ever, did you read a lot of science fiction and fantasy or anything like that? or? Yeah, I remember I had a subscription to Omni Magazine that I was very into. I collected collected all the issues for a while. I'm sure they're gone now, but yeah, and you know, I, I loved I loved <laughs> all these insane uh, short stories in that magazine. But yeah, you know, I was always into Heinlein and Bradbury and uh, you know the classics. But yeah, I was definitely into into sci-fi and just science and technology in general. Uh, so how bad was your old job as a programmer, and uh, would you encourage all programmers to give that up and become rock stars instead? Uh, I certainly like my job as a rock star better than I like my job as a programmer, but that said, it was not that bad a job. You know, people hear this on CodeMonkey and assume that it's a sort of direct biographical story, and it's, uh, I would say, loosely based on my experiences at that job. So, you know, it was really not... Um, not terrible at all. There were lovely people that I worked with, and, you know, I enjoyed the work. I, I still like writing code. You know, the only terrible thing about any job is the clients. If you could just sit in the privacy of your own brain and do work on whatever it is you're working on, I think that would be quite pleasurable for most people. But the fact is, you know, you have you always have some sort of a client that you need to please, and they're always wrong about what they want, uh, and it's a little frustrating. But aside from that, it was really not a bad job at all. I mean, it was one of the reasons I stayed there for almost 10 years. Uh, so what prompted you to try releasing songs for free on the Internet, and um, and how long did it take for them to sort of start catching on? Well, I was, it was uh, the end of 2005, and I was uh, leaving my day job to do music full-time, and I wasn't being employed to do that. So, 
you know, I suddenly had all this free time on my hands, and it seemed to make sense that I should pretend that it was my job to make music. So that's what I did. You know, I just every week I would put out a new song, and I sort of hoped that I would attract some attention that way, and it worked. You know, over the course of uh, the first few months, you know, I had a couple of the songs that kind of hit, and people were talking about them and um, sending their friends to the website. And uh, I would say by the middle of the year, you know, I wasn't making significant money selling the songs that I was putting up there, but I was definitely making some money. And uh, it sort of gave me the impression that if I kept going, uh, it would continue to get bigger. Uh, and indeed, it really, it really has done that. Um, so by the end of that year, you know, I had discovered that there were actual physical audiences that would show up to uh, shows that I did in various cities. Um, so I had started touring and, you know, I put all those songs on CDs. And uh, so it really worked even better than I expected. And you, you sort of do this thing, right, where you say that you'll show up if a certain number of people will promise that they'll be there? Yeah. Uh, there's a website called eventful.com that I've used for a long time. Uh, where people can demand uh, to have a Jonathan Colton concert in their city, and then I can look at all the cities and see which ones have the most number of people. You know, that has become, I will say, it was really useful to me when I was first starting out because I didn't know anything about any city. And so it was really handy to be able to say, to look at, uh, uh, you know, Seattle and see, oh, my God, there's 100 people want to come see a Jonathan Colton show. So... You know, if I charge this much per ticket and it costs me this much for my plane ticket and I stay with friends, you know, I can make this much profit. So that was really crucial when I was first starting out touring. It still comes in handy, but less so because, you know, now I, I've been around the country so much that I, you know, I have a full year's worth of cities that I can go to. Uh, it'll take me a year to get back to all of them uh, based on the touring schedule that I like to do. And so, you know, it's become less important to me to open up new places to play in because there are already so many. But that said, you know, it's, it's very handy if, uh, you know, we're going to be, I, I discover I'm going to be in Pittsburgh one night and Columbus the next. And, you know, I can sort of look geographically and say, what's near there uh, and how many people are signed up there. And um, uh, so it's, it still does come in handy. So you've written songs about two of my favorite things, uh, Mad Scientists and Zombies. Uh, which of those two things do you think are more likely to destroy the world? Probably mad scientists, because zombies are not real. That's, that would be my guess, anyway. Um, mad scientists are certainly real. There are a lot of them. They're very angry. <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the most likely scenario, you think? Like, how, how would a mad scientist uh, destroy the world in, in real life? Probably it's going to be some sort of uh, nuclear situation, some sort of atomic thing out of control. And I'm not talking about giant ants, because that's not, that's not a real thing. But, you know, some sort of explosive device, some sort of radiation. Uh, I, think that could, I think that could cause a lot of problems. Uh, so speaking of mad scientists, are you familiar with Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog? And if so, what did you think of it? I sure am. I thought it was uh, fantastic. I, you know, I was, um, I'm a big fan of most of the people involved uh, uh, and was even before they made it. Um, so... You know, on top of that, it was great to see a bunch of people getting together and making stuff without any large media corporation involved, you know, and, and to have it still be so great and, and polished and high quality and to have it reach so many people, even though it was, you know, it wasn't backed by a Hollywood studio or a, and it didn't appear on a television network, you know. It was, um, you know, granted there's some significant money behind it, but, you know, it's really 
to me, it was very heartening to see a bunch of people just create a thing, put it out there, and have it succeed. Uh, so do you have a zombie contingency plan yourself? Do I have the what? <laughs> uh, do you have a zombie contingency plan yourself? No, I, you know, I really don't think I have much chance if there's any sort of, uh, <laughs> any sort of zombie apocalypse. I, I haven't spent a lot of time shooting guns, and uh, I just don't have a lot of survival skills. I can't run very fast. I'm probably overweight and out of shape. My contingency plan is to go quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so do you think a guitar would be a, as good a weapon against zombies as it is in uh, Left 4 Dead 2? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could inflict a lot of damage on a zombie with a guitar in real life. Have you tried just hitting people with a guitar and you're like, yeah, this doesn't work that well? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you just hit a regular person, you've got to hit them a few times before they go down. <laughs> They're not even plus, as angry as a zombie is. So. And plus, the guitar would probably break eventually, so, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be too Yeah, it's, you don't want to ruin a guitar. Okay, so how did you end up working at, uh, with Valve to do the music for Portal? Uh, well, I was doing a, a show in Seattle, and some people came up to me after the show and introduced themselves and said that they worked at Valve. And have, had I ever considered writing music for video games? And I said, well, sure, you know, and... Uh, I was a big fan of Valve because, uh, because of Half-Life. and uh, So we arranged to have a meeting in the future, as, as people do. And uh, uh, I went to their offices, and they showed me around, and I got to play an early version of Portal and talk to a few of the writers and people working on the game. And you know, over the course of talking about a number of different things that we could do together, uh, it became clear pretty quickly that the best intersection of our skills and interests was probably uh, Portal, and specifically the character GLaDOS, who is, you know, the same kind of passive-aggressive monster that I'm always writing about uh, in hmm. music. So, you know, I'd like, like most people, I was immediately uh, drawn to her character. It's just so well-written and, and interesting. Um, so what do you think about the way your songs are presented in, uh, in uh, Rock Band? Uh, does the difficulty seem about right, or...? Well, they're all pretty easy. Many people remark on how easy they are. And in fact, they are also relatively easy to play in real life because I'm not a particularly, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of technical prowess when it comes to the guitar. You know, I'm a strummer more than anything else. So there's very little shredding in my songs. And I'm, I'm, I'm always a little nervous when it comes time to record the guitar solo because it's not my core competency. So I'm not surprised that they ended up being pretty easy, but... You know, the nice thing about a rock band is, you know, for, I would say, most people who play rock band, it doesn't need to be hard to be fun. In many ways, it's about playing the song in a musical way, in, in addition to it, to it being about playing the game. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully people won't mind so much. Uh, who knows? Maybe I need to write a really difficult song specifically to put into rock band <laughs> so I can get my credit back. Uh, rock Band recently released this uh, Rock Band de developer kit so that uh, artists and labels can uh, sort of put their own songs into Rock Band. And, and you have a couple songs uh, out in there, too. Uh, so what, what was that like? Uh, you know, sort of, did you, I mean, did you, were you involved with that directly, or how did that work? Yeah, I did not do the authoring myself, uh, although they have made the tools readily available and pretty easy to use. So, you know, really anybody could, could do it if you have the time and, you know, you, you need to know a little bit about MIDI and a little bit about music and a little bit about, uh, I would say, more about rock band and, you know, <laughs> how it is played and, and, you know, what the different difficulty levels mean and all that. But, um, you know, I looked at the process and I was like, you know, I would, you know, there's a part of me that would really love to do this myself, but also I just don't have the time and I know if I 
if I try to do it myself, I will never, ever get it done. So, you know, luckily there are a number of companies that have sprung up to provide offering services to artists. And, um, you know, I, I worked with a few of them for the first round of songs. Uh, and, I, you know, everybody's sort of trying it out and, and figuring out uh, how the whole thing works. And, and so there was, you know, during the open beta process, there were a lot of authoring teams floating around and working on different songs. But, uh, you know, for, from my perspective, it was pretty easy. I gave people the stems, you know, the individual tracks, and, and they, made it, they made it into a game. So hmm. <laughs> it was pretty easy for me. Uh, so are there any video games that don't feature music by you that are worth playing? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, um, I like games a lot. I, I've, truth be told, I've, I haven't had time to really play as many big-time console games as I used to. You know, it's just with the two kids and a family sharing a TV, it's hard to find find that time to really sit down and dig into a long story with 40 levels and 10 bosses, you know. So <laughs> I've really been playing a lot of iPhone games and uh, a lot more casual gaming in my life than there used to be just because it's much easier to fit in. That said, you know, I'll say a few games that I've been really impressed by you know, I loved Braid for the Xbox. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool, really cool game. Such interesting mechanisms. Uh, you know, it's a puzzle game, but surprisingly complex and mind-blowing. Uh, <laughs> and just beautiful, you know, the, the design of it. It's just a very pretty, pretty game. What else? I've been playing uh, Osmos on the Mac. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you're, you're one-celled organism kind of floating around trying to eat other one-celled organisms. And it's a, it's a pretty simple premise, but there are a couple of mechanisms that make it really fun to play. Uh, and again, great soundtrack and such a nice uh, look to it. Marble Blast Ultra, that's been the big uh, Xbox game for me. I like to go uh, into the online uh, uh, Xbox Live uh, area and get my ass kicked by a bunch <laughs> of 13-year-olds. Uh, and it's always remarkable to me that they can move the marble around as fast as they are moving it. <laughs> I feel like some of them have got to be cheating because it looks impossible. <laughs> so, so are there other musicians who sing about the, the sorts of things that you do, and do you wish that there were more people doing that kind of thing? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, sure, there's, there's plenty of musicians who sing about geeky stuff. I mean, more and more, or maybe it's just they're more and more noticeable. You know, there's, uh, if you like the rapping, there's always MC Frontalot, who is hilarious. Uh, and very talented musically, I think. And, you know, when I think about my influences, you know, they might be giants who have been writing this kind of music for 20 years uh, or more, 30 years, you know. Um, and they're huge influences on me, and, and uh, they continue to be, you know. And, and, and Weird Al Yankovic, too, you know, he's, I suppose, most, most well-known for the, the parody songs that he does. But he has quite a few original songs, and I think a lot of them are pretty great. You know, when I was a kid, I listened to uh, Nature's Trail to Hell in 3D over and over again, uh, and mostly for the original songs that were on there. Not to mention he's a fantastic accordion player, which I think uh, will serve anyone well. So, you know, a lot of your songs have a really strong uh, storytelling structure to them. Uh, do, you, do you have any interest in, you know, writing prose fiction or anything like that? No, because it seems too hard. It seems like <laughs> too much work. I have ideas when I'm writing songs, but I feel like I... I really only have enough ideas to support a three and a half minute song. You know, the idea of writing something that is 
uh, as long as a book or even a short story sort of gives me the willies that all that sitting down and type it and type it and type it, I don't know. It seems like, you know, I, I don't know that I would be able to hold my interest for long enough to be able to do that. I mean, you know, that's the thing about creating something is it's really only good when you get in that zone where you are working on something and you, you, you know, you forget about everything else and you forget to eat and you forget to go to the bathroom and you just want to sit there and keep making the thing that you're making. And I really only have that when I'm working on music. Uh, I, I have it when I'm writing things, but only for about a paragraph at a time, and then i got to get up and do something else. Hmm. You know, our uh, podcast is hosted by Tor.com, and there was a story on Tor.com recently by Cory Doctorow called The Things That Make Me Weak and Strange Get Engineered Away. Uh, I was just wondering yeah. if, if, you had heard of, if you had heard of that. Uh, yeah, I, uh, he, he let me know he was, uh, he was doing that, and I was, uh, I was thrilled. You know, I, I, I guess I first heard of Cory through through Boing Boing, you know, and from that, uh, his fiction, which I think is great. I love the kinds of things he writes about. To me, it feels like a very modern kind of science fiction. It's about the future that we imagine now as opposed to the future that we've been imagining all these years. And it turns out those two things are pretty different. And, yeah, he's, he's a great guy and I think a very smart, very smart person. And so, yeah, I was very, very flattered when, when I heard he was going to do that. Is that something that you see more and more of, like lines from your songs and things just popping up in odd places? Yeah, occasionally. It always tickles me, you know. Um, and I've met, I've met a few people that I really admire through that. You know, it's sort of how I came to know Will Wheaton and how I came to know Neil Gaiman is by, you know, noticing in the Google search for my name <laughs> that I have running in the background all the time that they had mentioned me on their blogs, you know, and I was like, oh, God, those people know who I am. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a huge fan of them. So the funny thing about everybody publishing what they think all the time on the Internet is, is that, you know, you can sort of find each other that way. And so, you know, when Neil Gaiman came to one of my shows in Minneapolis, you know, was a friend of a friend who was working the merchandise table, knew him and knew that he was coming and let me know. And then, you know, they sort of introduced us after the show. And it was one of those things like, I'm a huge fan of you. And it was like, no, I'm a huge fan of you. You know, sort of great. And I don't know if we would have even known about each other's uh, mutual admiration if it weren't for the Internet. Um, so, yeah, occasionally, occasionally that happens. And it's always very flattering to know that a famous person is thinking about you. <laughs> Uh, well, so like you mentioned, Boing Boing, uh, like what other blogs or, or things do you follow the most? You know, I, I, used, to, I used to read uh, Slashdot like crazy, but I have found, I don't know if this is the changing nature of culture and media or just me, but I don't, I don't have the patience to make it through that feed anymore. It's just like, it's just like a fire hose, you know, and I, I, <laughs> if, I, if I miss it for a couple of days, I can't catch up. You know, so I've, I've um, you know, I'm kind of a gadget hound, uh, and uh, I'm a Big Mac fan. Not the, not the Big Mac, the hamburger. <laughs> so, you know, I, I tend to keep up on that news. Let's see, you know, during Fireball, I think is the greatest blog about Apple uh, on the planet right now. It's really, uh, I think, excellent analysis and, and finding of links to other excellent analysis of, of you know, what Apple's what Apple is doing and why. Waxy.org is uh, Andy Bayo's uh, link blog. Very, very short, short bits of cool things, links to cool things. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, I, guess, I guess we share a sensibility because uh, everything that he links to, I'm always really interested in. <laughs> uh, 
Um, um, what else? You know, the rest, the rest of it is sort of friends and uh, and fellow creative people. Um, and, you know, the bulk of my online time reading about stuff tends to happen on Twitter these days, which, again, another another short, short burst of information easily consumed um, that I can do in between when I'm doing other things. Um, so, yeah, really, if it's longer than a couple of paragraphs, I don't have time for it. <laughs> <laughs> You've been to the, like the the Penny Arcade Expo before and uh, performed there, right? So, um, what 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 has your experience been like uh, going to that and performing for that crowd? Uh, it's really amazing. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, they really do such a great job running it, and uh, it's this enormous group of people all interested in video games, uh, and so the whole the whole weekend is fantastic. But uh, on top of that, you know, they treat the musical act like actual rock stars, you know, and they have these big concerts in these giant rooms. And I think this, I think the Seattle one is like five or 6,000 people. And it's, it's just huge and great. And, you know, it's by far the biggest audiences that I've ever played for. And yeah, PAX East is coming up in, uh, not this weekend, but next weekend. And, um, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it's the first time they're doing it on the East Coast. We'll see, we'll see how it goes, but I'm sure it'll be fantastic. Have you have you done any other uh, sort of conventions like science fiction oriented or anything like that? Have you uh, performed at uh, Comic Con or uh, considered doing Worldcon or anything like that? No, I haven't done Comic Con. I haven't done Dragon Con. Um, there have been a couple of other cons that I've done when they've sort of fit into the schedule. But uh, you know, pretty quickly once I started touring, I just ran out of time. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't like to be on the road too much because of my family, and so you know I need to be really brutal about saying no to things that don't fit into the schedule. Uh, otherwise, I'd be away every weekend, and I'd be miserable. And cons are one of those things that, you know, they're fun, but they're not... I mean, to me, I, I always prefer playing in a music venue, you know, a place where, where there are audio professionals making it sound good and where the room is meant to be to have music played and people to listen to it. And cons are rarely, rarely in that sort of situation. So, you know, the, the music is less... Uh, enjoyable for me for that for that reason. I mean, it, you know, it's often the audiences are, are great, are, are as good as or even better than in a in a music club. But um, it's just a very different experience. And on top of that, you know, a con lasts for uh, an entire weekend usually, whereas a show show is only one night. And I can do a few of those in a weekend. And it's just a much more efficient way for me to use my time. So I tend not to do a lot of cons. Uh, lately, uh, and mainly because they are they are things that are fun, and I don't I don't have the luxury of doing fun weekends away anymore as much as I used to. Uh, so, do you have anything new that people should check out, and what should we look forward to seeing from you in the future? The latest thing is really the, the all the songs in the Rock Band Network, you know, which I'm I'm very excited about. I think there's there were well let's see there were three in the in the game of Rock Band already, and I just added another four to the Rock Band Network. So uh, that's a total of seven, if I'm doing my math correctly. And, you know, I'm going to keep adding uh, to that. So that's a very fun thing. Let's see. The only other thing prior to that was, oh, God, it's been, <laughs> this is not so much a new product anymore. But there's, there's of course, my concert DVD, Best Concert Ever, <laughs> uh, which was a, a single concert uh, filmed at great expense in uh, the city of San Francisco. And that that's was actually a great show. That's a lot of fun. And then I don't know, you know, the it's been it's been kind of a crazy six months for me. I moved and been working on the house and 
uh, all of that is kind of settling down, so I'm hoping to get back to work now that uh, the bulk of uh, the touring in the beginning of this year has, has sort of subsided. I'm hoping to, you know, I have a, a, quite a few song ideas, and I'm hoping to be able to sit down and, and hash out. So uh, more stuff will come soon. Okay, great. Well, Jonathan Colton, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Jonathan Colton for joining us on the show. So, uh, you know, so now we're going to talk about some music-related stuff. And I want to make it clear right off the, off the bat that I do not in any way, shape, or form represent myself as a musical expert. <laughs> and to maybe give you a sense of this, I'm going to relate a story from my childhood, which I had actually forgotten until, you know, which I had managed to block out until just thinking about what I was going to talk about on the show. So when I was in sixth grade, our teacher took a poll of our class of what everyone's favorite band was. You know, we were supposed to all vote for the most popular band. So, so one of the leading suggestions was Aerosmith. And so, so she went to write this on the board. And of course, she wrote it, A-R-R-O-W, Smith. <laughs> and, uh, and that was actually the first I had heard of Aerosmith. So when she wrote it like that, I was like, wow, cool. It's like some fantasy-related thing. And then, of course, everyone in the class was, like, shrieking. They're like, that's not how you spell it. <laughs> oh, my God. Could our teacher be any more of a loser? <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting there like, wow, I didn't know how to spell it either. <laughs> and, and, of course, once I, once I realized it, was not, it wasn't a fantasy thing, I just completely lost all interest. And then, uh, so it came down to, uh, I don't remember what the other band was, but it was Aerosmith versus some other band. And exactly half the class had voted for Aerosmith, and exactly half the class had <laughs> voted for this other band, except me, and I hadn't voted because I'd never heard of any of these bands. And so the teacher's like, hmm, we have an odd number of students, but we have a tie. Someone must not have voted. You know, who didn't vote? And so I sort of had to admit that I hadn't voted. And, and everyone's like, hey, he doesn't even know who Aerosmith is. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I ended up voting for Aerosmith just because, you know, I, I, I despise the kids who were voting for Aerosmith marginally less than I despised the kids who were voting for the other band. Damn it, Dave. This is how democracy fails. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've just always, you know, been mostly into books and video games and movies and things. And, and I, you know, I like music just fine, but it's always been, been way down the list. I remember when we, uh, when we first met and we were sort of getting to know each other and like what, you know, what each other's into, uh, I know I asked you like what sort of music you were in and like, you just, you, you couldn't really answer the question, you know, it's like, well, who's your favorite band? Like, nah, I, don't know, I don't know. And it was just like, it was like pulling teeth to get you to like, to actually admit to liking anything, I think, as I recall. Um, I think later on you sort of, uh, you know, pointed out that like you listen to certain songs. It's like, you like certain songs, but you don't really, you know, like bands. Yeah, like you know, I've never, I've, I've been to maybe a handful of concerts in my life. If, if someone dragged me to it, but you know, there, there are very few musical acts where I like more than three or four of their songs enough to actually want to go listen to them play all of their songs in a row. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of stuff. If you just want to fit in, you have to kind of pretend to like. And so, sort of, you know, like rock music was kind of one of those things for me. You know, I think I told you right that I, I had finally decided that it was enough of a like a social liability that I was going to have to learn something about popular music until I actually just started watching MTV. You know, mm -hmm. I had to find it on the TV. I didn't know what you know what, what channel <laughs> it was, and so I just started watching it. I was taking notes, you know, and just trying to learn what the different bands were and what their songs were and things. Uh, and so then I, you know, I, I was buying CDs, you know, because everyone was like, "Hey, let's let me see your CD collection." I'm like, "Oh, mm -hmm. I don't have a CD," <laughs> you know. And then essentially once I was out of college, you know, I just put it in a box and never looked at it again. But I had also, I had gotten really sick of buying 
seat because you know it used to be you know you'd have to buy a cd and you know they cost 20 or 25 dollars or something and you know usually you would hear one good song on the radio and then you would buy the cd and that song would be on it and then there would be like eight or nine other songs that weren't any good mm-hmm. and i just got really sick of buying of spending all that money for one good song and so i had basically given up completely on buying music and then when itunes came along it was kind of nice because if there was a song i liked i could just buy that one song and you know i always felt guilty about downloading music so i, I never did that it's so cute, Dave. The story that you're telling—it's like you're—it's like you're an alien trying to assimilate the <laughs> human culture. It's like, oh, I I must study this thing they call music to fit in. But yeah, so I mean, so a lot of the songs I listen to, I don't, I don't, I don't have any idea who ah. who the band is, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've been I've been judged so harshly so much in my life by you know people are like, hey, who are some of your favorite bands? And I'll tell them, and they're like, ah, you're a you're an idiot. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I just it's just like a subject I don't really want to get into, you know. <laughs> But I don't know. What are your, what are are you more normal than I am? Or I mean, what was your experience? I, I don't know if I'd say more normal. I mean, I, I definitely like music, but I mean, I don't like anything that's like really popular at all. Um, I mean, I kind of started off uh, from an early age. I mean, I actually liked music. I guess my whole life. I mean, you know, I remember uh, watching MTV when I was like seven or eight or something, and you know, I liked Billy Idol and and Quiet Riot and stuff like that. So I'm and you know, I mean, I'm like I'm a I'm a big metal fan now, and so I guess I kind of started even as a metal fan when I was a little kid. I mean, uh, admittedly, Quiet Riot and and Billy Idol isn't uh, isn't really hardcore metal or anything. It's sort of uh, metal light, but you know, for a seven year old kid, that's pretty metal. So how, wait, how do you get into metal when you're seven years old? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know. <laughs> I can't explain it. I mean, you know, I don't even know how I ended up watching MTV, but, you know, Billy Idol used to be on MTV all the time. And, you know, I, I don't know. I liked a couple of his songs that they used to play over and over. And uh, I don't, I don't remember how I got into Quiet Riot. I guess they may have uh, also had a video that they played. Um, but I know, like, Come On, Feel the Noise. I think that was probably the one song that uh, sort of got me into them. And, uh, like, I, honestly, I can't explain it, um, you know, how a seven-year-old kid gets into metal. But, uh, I mean, I definitely listened to it uh, at that age. And, uh, I mean, it took me a long time, like, sort of really the course of, you know, my whole life to really develop the taste that I have now. But, um, you know, because now, I mean, I listen to, like, you know, sort of death metal. And, uh, I mean, specifically, I, I, I really dig, like, melodic death metal and folk metal, uh, also known as pagan metal. You know, a lot of this stuff gets pretty geeky. So I think it's sort of a fitting topic for our show. But... You know, because I mean, a lot of this stuff sort of deals with fantasy topics and, and all that, but also just just the fact that these guys are like so proficient at guitar and like some of the crazy stuff they can do. That's pretty geeky. You know, you have to be like a huge sort of guitar geek to even get that proficient at guitar. You know what I'm saying? You know, I don't know. I I always I always kind of thought that metal is kind of uh, it's like one of the most most challenging forms of music to appreciate, and like science fiction and fantasy is kind of one of the more challenging forms of literature to appreciate. In that both of them sort of require more out of the out of the consumer to to enjoy it. You know, it's not just like SF fantasy isn't just like real life, and you know, metal often you know has lyrics that are hard to understand or whatever, or involves screaming and stuff. And so it's like it's more complex. And uh, so I don't know. I think that that's sort of one of the reasons why you know people who like one may uh, sort of gravitate towards the other as well. I actually, you know, I mean, we've known each other very well for like ten years or something. And I guess I don't know even know if someone asks you. <laughs> what, what bands are your favorites because i never have because i just don't care right but like if someone asks you what bands are your favorite how do you answer that question uh yeah well i mean i like i like i really like uh this band in flames and dark tranquility and at the gates uh i mean they're they're usually the the, the top three that i would list uh, i mean I, I like i like lots and lots of different bands i mean i have um 
I, I haven't totaled up how many songs or bands I have, but I mean, I, I mean, I've got a huge library of, of, of music and, and like, um, like unlike you, I mean, I actually do like bands and, and whole albums. Like, I mean, I'm a big album person, like, you know, the iTunes revolution is great for being able to buy one song and all that. But I mean, I, I'm really, I, I never do that. I always buy the album. I like that the internet has made it possible to sample all this different stuff before you buy it because, you know, the metal I listen to, like, I mean, you know, I can't listen to it on the radio or anything. And I mean, the radio is like, you know, it's like the worst. I can't stand listening to the radio. You know, if I want to sample new stuff, there's no way for me to do it, like, without the internet, unless I just, like, sort of buy albums randomly based on reviews. And, and like, you know, music reviews, I can almost never tell anything about an album from a music review. I mean, if I'm lucky, I can tell what subgenre it is. And then, you know, sort of get some inkling if maybe I will like it. But, you know, at best, it's like it's, it's a total crapshoot whether I actually will like it or not. So, you know, the Internet sort of made that great. And, and like that's one of the still remaining uses of MySpace. Uh, you know, everyone sort of abandoned MySpace as uh, <laughs> this uh, wasteland of the Internet. But um, it's still useful for bands because they always have those music players on there and you can go listen to uh, a couple of their songs. And, uh, you know, I sample a lot of stuff that way. And I mean, I mean, I've never heard and heard of any of those bands that you mentioned. And right. I mean, I find it very frustrating when people ask me who my favorite authors are, mm -hmm. and I tell them, and they've almost never heard of any of them. You know, right. it must be the same thing for you with music, right? I mean, how often do you meet someone even who you mention those bands and they've they've heard of them? Right. Yeah. No. I mean, it almost never happens. I mean, there there are some there are some bands that are sort of more on the popular end of the spectrum and and like so, and like i i always find it surprising to figure out which bands actually are popular but like there's this one band mastodon and they sort of have a lot of uh, commercial crossover with a sort of a ma more mainstream audience and so i've actually i've met a number of people who actually know mastodon uh and there's another band lamb of god who also like you know they're like really really heavy so i mean i was kind of, i'm kind of surprised that they're that they have that sort of mainstream appeal but um a lot of people who aren't necessarily metal fans uh sort of know them and uh, like both of those bands for instance ended up in rock bands so you know that sort of gives you some idea that they have that they've reached some sort of mainstream acceptance if they um you know actually available in rock band well so you, you mentioned that they're kind of geeky in terms of their subject matter i mean could yeah. you give us some examples of that yeah, um, well, like Mastodon, for instance, their uh, their latest album, which is which is like really awesome, actually, and uh, my favorite of theirs, I think. But it's called Crack the Sky, and it's like it's a it's a concept album. So like the whole album tells this one story, and it's uh, it's just like this really bizarre, trippy, weird fantasy thing going on. I mean, I couldn't even uh, explain the plot of it to you because I mean, I'm not you know, it's it's pretty weird and complex, and doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like you know, sort of line by line, but you know, so I mean, they I mean, that's just like this whole you know, weird fantasy thing going on there. And then, um, you know, I mentioned folk metal and pagan metal. I mean, that is all basically like singing about pagan gods and, and Vikings and, uh, you know, that sort of mythology. So, uh, I mean, there's actually a whole sub sort of sub sub genre called like Viking metal, which is like, you know, just guys screaming about Vikings and shit, you know, um, sorry, I didn't mean to swear. Um, you know, when you talk, when you start talking about metal, it kind of makes <laughs> you want to swear. But, you know, there's a band called Amana Marth, which is actually, you know, if, if, if for the Tolkien fans out there, that's uh, that's the like the Elvish name for Mount Doom or something. I mean, it's definitely a, it's a definitely another name for Mount Doom. I, I can't remember if it's Elvish or not. But uh, so they're called Amana Marth. And um, although they're named after Tolkien, they actually sing exclusively about Vikings. So, um, I mean, they're like one of the leading practitioners of this Viking metal. But then there's also there's this other band called uh, El Waity, and like if I if you tried to spell it like you'd never spell it right. I mean, speaking of Aerosmith, I mean, geez, uh, you'd never spell this thing right. But I mean, they sing partially in English, but then partially they sing in ancient Gaulish, 
And I'm like, <laughs> when I learned that, I was like, uh, what? It's just like, why? I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> uh, but they, you know, they play a hurdy gurdy in the band. They have like the most metal sounding flute I've ever seen. And, you know, so, I mean, just that, that just seems really geeky into its, in, in itself to me. I mean, um, with them, like, I, I don't know, I've, I've never really uh, read the lyrics for their stuff so much. And I can't really understand what most of, most of what they're saying, since a lot of it is in ancient Gaulish. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, so they're, they're very geeky. But, I mean, there's, there's tons and tons of different ones that just sort of all over the spectrum, diff- different types of geeky things. Well, you know, when I was talking about how when I first saw, when the teacher spelled Aerosmith... As, mm-hmm. if, if, as if they were like a blacksmith except making arrows and it momentarily piqued my interest as if it might be some sort of fantasy fantasy thing i mean that just makes me think i mean what if what if there had been more sort of geeky music that i was exposed to when i was growing up and might might i have just taken more of an interest in in music because you know when you think about the subject matter of popular music mm-hmm. it's like 98 percent love songs mostly somebody singing about how they mistreated their lover and now <laughs> the person has probably justifiably left them and, and they want them back. And this just, just never really resonated with me particularly. And and it, it sort of seems like, like if books were 98% romance novels, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have had much interest in books, right? And right, yeah, yeah. I don't know. So I, I wonder now if, you know, if maybe with people like Jonathan Colton, and you know just writing more about stuff i might be interested in if if there are sort of more geeky kids who are kind of taking an interest in music because it's not just such a bland monoculture product that that was sort of what was being served up when i was a child right well yeah i mean i think that i mean that's certainly one of the appeals of metal to me is that you know it, it, it you know there's almost no metal love songs you know so i mean you know they they, they take all these different um the variety of subjects and including a lot of actually you know sort of you know, flat out fantasy topics. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you might be right about the, you know, the sort of rise of geek music. Uh, I mean, you know, in addition to Jonathan Colton, there's also bands like Tenacious D, you know, uh, features Jack Black uh, as half the band. And um, when you have something like Tenacious D that it has all this sort of crossover um, with movies and they had like a television show and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's another gateway into getting people into it, you know? So like, I mean, for instance, I would have probably never listened to Tenacious D except that, you know, I'd heard that the movie was really funny. And it is, actually. I mean, like, I, I definitely would encourage everyone um, who sort of likes any sort of geeky music or even just likes a good comedy to check out the movie. It's it's called Tenacious D and, this, and the Pick of Destiny. Um, but it's it's actually really, really uh, funny. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't have even said that I was a big Jack Black fan before that. But, you know, it made him grow on me a bit. Um, because it does seem to me that maybe things are, are getting better now in terms of just kind of interesting subject matter for music and it seems like things were better kind of back in the 60s i guess i mean it seems like when i talk to people who are alive during the 60s that they just have this emotional connection to music that i certainly don't have Mm -hmm. because it seems like the music was actually about something substantive and relevant and and powerful uh you know like i do know one sort of bona fide rock star uh this is janice ian Mm -hmm. and um she was, you know, just really, really popular in the 60s. And, you know, I, I, everyone I've talked to who was alive then you know, knows who she is. Mm-hmm. And I met her through, uh, she's also kind of interested in science fiction and, and started writing science fiction, you know, in the last uh, 10 years or so. And so actually, uh, when I went to one of the first world cons I went to, uh, I met her there because uh, she was kind of hanging, hanging out with Mike Resnick. And I knew Mike Resnick because he had been one of my clarion instructors. And so so some of us met Janice and she was just really, really nice. And uh, she actually asked, you know, we, uh, I told her that 
a couple of my Clarion buddies and I had this sort of email group where we were just trying to figure out how to how to be writers. And she asked if she could join us, hmm. you know, could join this list because she's like, you know, because when it comes to writing, I'm I'm new at this just like you are. And it was it was really cool having her. I mean, this this list went on for years, and uh, it was really really cool having her on because she you know she was new at writing, but she obviously she had a lot of experience in entertainment and stuff and, and gave us a lot of really good advice about how to deal with different situations and things mm-hmm. you know like how to deal with fans uh and i mean not that i ever had not that i have any fans but if i you know if i acquire some fans at some point i'll, I'll know how to deal with them um, right but she was saying you know like once you get to a certain um level of fame that you're just constant people are constantly just asking you to listen to their stuff you know Mm-hmm. And she said, like, the best way to handle this is just to say, well, send it to me and I'll, I'll listen to it if I get a chance. And then if you get a chance, you know, and then, then it's true what you said. And if you get a chance, you can listen to it. And if not, you know, it's it's just sort of a, a kind of uh, polite, you know, way to, to deal with people, mm-hmm. you know, in, in person. So so stuff like that was, was really useful. But, um, I mean, she had been on, uh, like, she was on Johnny Carson when she was a teenager and had big hits and and like one of her songs like i guess her first big song was uh society's child which was Mm -hmm. about an interracial relationship and she was saying that i I was actually just reading that like like a radio station in atlanta was burned to the ground because they had played this song Hmm. because it was so controversial at the time you know And, and and so like stuff like that where the music was really important and was really had a message to it and everything and i compare that to like the music you know that that's been popular in my lifetime where it's like my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard or whatever, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have any kind of, you know, social statements or anything. I, I felt kind of bad. I, I had like no idea who Janice Ian was. Like, I mean, not when you mentioned her, but like, you know, Mike Resnick did that anthology a couple of years ago called stars. And it, it was uh, sort of based on the songs of Janice Ian. Um, and, you know, so he got all these different science fiction writers who I guess were fans of hers. And, uh, you know, they all wrote songs or they all wrote stories inspired by your songs. And when I saw that, I was just like, I, just, I had no idea who she was. And, and so, like, you know how you, you were saying how, you know, you just didn't know any of these bands, like, in, in when you were in school, like, you didn't know Aerosmith and all that. I mean, I have huge gaps of my, you know, sort of musical knowledge, too. Like, you know, like, Beatles Rock Band recently came out, and, I mean, I, I almost know nothing about the Beatles. I mean, like, you know, obviously I know some of their uh, bigger hits just because um, they're so sort of everywhere. You can't avoid having some knowledge of the Beatles, but, I mean... Just my my lack of Beatles knowledge is uh, sort of staggering. Yeah, I actually do kind. Of, I know the Beatles actually reasonably well because that was one of the things my parents listened to when I was growing up. But uh, I, it was funny, you know. There's this uh, Stephen King story called The Raft that I I read a long time ago that I really really liked, and and I went back and reread it. Well, I, I should say it's it's about some some kids and they swim out to this raft and then they get then there's a monster in the water and they can't leave the raft without being killed. And so they're kind of stuck on the raft and the creature just keeps swimming around and they don't know what to do. And so I'd read the story and I really liked this story. And then I went and re- went back and reread it, you know, five years ago or something. And it it struck me when I reread it that like half the story seems like it's quotes of rock lyrics, mm-hmm. you know, from the, uh, from the 60s. And it, mm-hmm. it just seems like, you know, I can't imagine that I'll ever, you know, that I'll ever write a story that's half quotes of music that I listen to. Right. Well, for one thing, uh, you have to be pretty rich to be able to even afford to do that because uh, I guess every time you, you quote lyrics in a song, uh, you actually have to pay for the rights to it, and, and they tend to be pretty pricey. 
But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, Stephen King is, you know, sort of famously really into music. I mean, he's even in some band, right? I mean, uh, it, oh, yeah, he has a band called The Rock Bottom Remainders. Right, right. And, we, and it's like sort of a super group made of other sort of literary stars, you know? Um, like Ridley Pearson is one of the members, and I don't remember who, who else is I in it. I think Amy Tan is in it, maybe? That could be, I don't know. But, um, I mean, everybody who's in it, I believe, is sort of a, a big literary or, you know, a big writer, a sort of a famous writer. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, uh, isn't Patrick Nielsen Hayden also in a uh, in sort of a band like that? I mean, not not people as famous as in Stephen King's band, but I mean, uh, it's all sort of uh, publishing insiders or, or something like that. I think that's I think that's right, but I, yeah, I couldn't tell you who was in mm -hmm. it. But can you think of many sort of fantasy and science fiction? Because it, it seems like I've, I've heard anyway that that kind of in the '60s that there was a big crossover between science fiction and rock and roll. That rock and roll people were all reading science fiction, and the science fiction writers were hanging out with rock and roll people and stuff. I mean. Do you, do you know much about this? I, I know about the sort of various books and stories that I've read that are sort of obviously influenced by rock of that era. I mean, you know, George Martin wrote um, – he wrote a novel called The Armageddon Rag that's, uh, you know, sort of – you know, mu must have been inspired by, you know, his love of music. Yeah, well, actually I was going to mention that one because uh, right. I think he was actually a, a sort of rock journalist for a while. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so the protagonist is a rock journalist and uh, – it's a, it's a really cool, interesting book, and it's it's very much about the 60s and, you know, what they meant for American society and stuff. And uh, it, it posits that there was a uh, a rock band called the Nazgul, you know, named after the Tolkien characters, uh, that was, like, as big as the Rolling Stones or whatever. And, uh, and so that's kind of the center of the book. It, it, when it came out, I guess it was sort of uh, really not, it really was not, did not sell well. I heard him say one time that uh, he thought he had this really cool idea for a book that it was going to, I don't remember the exact, the three things, but it was something along the lines of he thought it would be a cool mix of horror and fantasy and rock and roll or something like that. And then when it didn't sell, he decided that maybe there had been too much horror for the fantasy fans and hmm. too much fantasy for the horror fans and rock and roll fans don't read. <laughs> But it's been re-released. I think maybe people now are are more accepting of genre blending stuff like mm -hmm. that. So yeah, if you're interested, you know, if you're into <laughs> fantasy and horror and rock and roll, you should definitely check it out. Uh, yeah, you know, actually, one of the other people I was going to mention is Lucius Shepard. Um, like apparently, you know, he was uh, not sure what role he played in the music scene, but he was told he was like in he was like really involved with the sort of grunge scene as it was coming up in Seattle, you know, in the '90s and. Um, you know, he, he's, like, really into music, like, otherwise. Like, I mean, I've heard him talk about, like, black metal and stuff. And, uh, um, and you know, he had, he had this great novella in FNSF, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago now called Stars Seen Through Stone, uh, you know, sort of about this, uh, this guy who discovers this, like, sort of great, you know, obscure musical act playing in this, like, little no nothing town. And, and, you know, all kind of fantasy stuff happens around in the story. But, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's very informed by his knowledge of, of working with uh, musical artists and stuff. Yeah, I think uh, Michael Moorcock maybe was also kind of oh, in yeah. that. Um, you know, they uh, I think it was Tachyon just released uh, a collection called The Best of Michael Moorcock, and I just started reading it, but one of the first few stories is called A Dead Singer, mm -hmm. and it's sort of this, this roadie, and he's driving around in a van with this guy named Jimmy, and, uh, you know, and Jimmy, we, we, we pick up as a, a, a musician who's kind of dropped out of the musical scene, and the protagonist is hoping that Jimmy's going to make a come come back one of these days sort of once he gets his his head together and and as the story get go, goes on you you realize that Jimmy is is Jimmy Hendrix or the ghost of Jimmy Hendrix or maybe this guy is just crazy uh and it's it's really cool and really really creepy 
Uh, yeah, Ma uh, Moorcock actually, uh, he was very involved with music. You know, he um, he actually wrote some songs for Blue Oyster Cult. And, um, you know, they're sort of famous for Don't Fear the Reaper, that song. And uh, But, you know, Moorcock wrote um, some of their songs. And I think they, uh, it, it sort of had something to do with uh, with his Elric character. Yeah, so, you know, he was in this he was in this um, English rock band called Hawkwind. And uh, or at least he was a sort of an occasional uh, member you know, so obviously he was uh, heavily into music since he was actually in a band and and wrote songs for you know a famous band like um, Blue or Cult. Um, but when you know when I was talking about like Stephen King quoting lyrics and stuff, it was kind of making me think. I'm pretty sure this was Jonathan Lethem said this, but some author anyway said you know uh, he had he had just made up a bunch of bands. You know he had written a book that combined you know references to real bands to references to made up bands. Mm -hmm. And the interviewer asked him, well, why did you make up the? Why are there these made up bands? just as background in the book and he said well because i wanted there to be songs that are that the characters love that the reader just takes it for granted are good songs and, and that they sort of love in that <laughs> transitive way too mm -hmm. um but if you mention a real song then the reader might say oh i know that song i hate that song mm -hmm. whereas a uh, a made-up band and a made-up song can be a, a sort of platonic ideal of a good song in a right. way that a real song you know just can't be yeah, no, um, so I, I recently saw this movie, uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Um, it's actually based on a book, too, so I guess, uh, um, you know, there's a book as well. But in the, in the um, you know, the movie's obviously about music. You know, it's got playlists in the title. But the characters sort of are looking for this. Uh, th there's, a, there's this band called, I think, Where's Fluffy? And um, they sort of do these, like, surprise shows, and they sort of leave clues throughout town or whatever. And so, like, they're sort of hunting around for the band the whole movie. And, you know, obviously they're a fake band. So, like, you know, we, you can't know if you would actually like them. And so, like, you sort of you sort of do like them at, by that same transitive property that Lethem was talking about, you know. And, um, of course, in the movie, like, they, they can't actually ever show the concert because they're, they're supposed to be this epically awesome band, but they don't actually exist. So, like, how are you going to – how are you going to have some fake band uh, – pull that off and and actually seem awesome so uh it was it was pretty cleverly done i thought and it was actually that was actually a much better movie than i was i was anticipating it would be um you know it's sort of a romantic comedy that and you know i don't typically go for that um sort of stuff uh that much but i mean that was a pretty well done one uh well you know when when jonathan colton was talking about you know you were asking him if he would ever write a novel or something mm -hmm. and he was saying oh well, that just seems like too much work i just you know i like writing songs that sort of fits my attention span sort of that was making me making me think that you know because i really like writing short stories and you know whenever essentially whenever i tell somebody that i'm a writer they say like oh so what are, what's your what's your novel about mm -hmm. and i'm like oh actually i haven't written any novels yet i but i've written you know like over 100 short stories and they're kind of like oh <laughs> you know like <laughs> like like that's not even that's like oh you're not a real writer you know mm -hmm. short stories what are those if you think that's bad, try telling try telling someone you edit anthologies <laughs> and see the blank look that crosses their face. And I'm kind of like, you know, have you have you ever heard of? Well, you know, probably not. <laughs> you know, well, have you ever heard of Poe or? I was going to mm -hmm. say Lovecraft, but they probably haven't ever heard of him. But or like, you know, ever heard of Sherlock Holmes? I mean, those were <laughs> short stories, you know. Right, right. Those were you know legitimate writer projects. Um, but I kind of you know I'm kind of envious in a way of of songwriters where you know you write songs. And they're three minutes long or whatever, you know, and you tell people, oh, I'm a songwriter. And they say, oh, that, that's cool. And they don't say, oh, so when are you going to write an opera? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, they understand like, oh, well, you know, 
operas are cool and everything, but maybe I don't want to write an opera. Maybe I just like writing songs. Yeah, and and one of the one of the sort of unique properties of music, I think that um, it has an advantage over uh, prose, is that also like if you really like a song, like you might listen to it like over and over and over. I mean, you know, it's always hard to tell like how many times you've listened to a song in the past, but you know, like iTunes now it actually tracks the play count and it'll actually track it from all your different iPods and your plays on the computer, you know? So, um, so it'll actually sync all that stuff up. So, I mean, I can actually look at my playlists and, and see that, Oh, well, I, geez, I've listened to this song like a hundred times already, you know? And I mean, that's, that's actually quite a lot given that like, you know, I have a playlist of like, you know, 200 songs or something that I sort of go through. Um, you know, I, I you know, before listening to the same song over and over, I, I, I will have listened to the whole playlist. And so, you know, if I've listened to something a hundred times, obviously it's it's stayed in my playlist for quite a while while other stuff has rotated in and out. But, you know, uh, like, I mean, I've never read any short story or novel a hundred times, certainly. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are probably people who have, uh, you know, I mean, I, I you know, we uh, we we have friends that have like sort of read Lord of the Rings like every year. Um, and I mean, even that, like, you know, then what she made me read it like this, like, you know, our friend Andrea, like, you mm-hmm. know, she, so she's what, maybe read it 20 times or something. I mean, you um, you know, it would just it would take it would, you know you'd have to read it several times a year to to catch up with the pace of a of a song. But it, it seems to me the big advantage that music has over prose fiction is that it can become popular a lot faster. It seems mm-hmm. like because you know you can listen to it. You know, it doesn't require much of an investment on the part of the audience to listen to a song. You know, mm-hmm. you can just hear something on the radio and and you're not even paying attention and you're like, oh, hey, I like that. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you can't just you know, oh, I wasn't really paying any attention to that short story, but. I like it, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, reading is much more of an active sort of form of entertainment, and that's always been um, one of its uh, challenges to, you know, reaching any sort of mainstream acceptance, um, you know, just on, a, you know, c- comparing it to something like watching movies or television. In w- you know, like, for instance, on television, having millions and millions of fans who tune in every week, that might not be good enough, <laughs> you know. And there's, like, shows that get canceled all the time, and they only have millions and millions of fans. You know, whereas like any book, any any book or story that has millions of fans, that would be epically awesome. And like you could hardly believe your success at that point, you know, so. Uh, but it seems like so it takes a lot longer for books to become popular, you know, right. if, if they ever do. And, and so one of the sort of sad things is that, you know, usually uh, or often the author is dead by the time mm-hmm. the book becomes really, really popular, where so you see a lot of really young musical stars you know mm-hmm. you'll have like like um uh, what's her name um <laughs> hannah montana oh um, yeah miley no, cyrus that's actually miley cyrus you know mm-hmm. and it's really rare to have a 16 year old writer who's really popular right um like that because you know not only is it a lot harder to write a novel than to sing a song that somebody else wrote for you but uh you know just by the time anyone's and a sort of a critical mass of people have read it you know mm-hmm. Of course, then you have exceptions like uh, Christopher Paolini, who, you know, did write a novel when he was like 15 or 16 or whatever, and uh, it was hugely popular. And I guess it's still very popular now. Yeah, but even he, I mean, he was, wasn't even like 20 or so by the time it actually was published and... Yeah, I don't remember how old he was Got a, he was you know, published, really but... sort of high profile and stuff. I mean, everyone sort of remembers that he wrote it when he was 16 or whatever, but right. I mean, he wasn't still that young yeah. when and when people started really hearing about it. Yeah, there's a, there's another. Um, I mean, there's actually quite a, a quite a few writers like this who are very young when they had things published. I mean, you know, not mo- most of them have not achieved this level of success as Christopher Paolini. I mean, obviously, I mean, almost. I mean, I would think almost everybody who's listening to this will have heard of him. You know, I mean, I mean, 
partially because it also was made in, you know, the first book, Aragon, was also made into a movie, so that helped. But, you know, there's another writer called, uh, named uh, Amelia Atwater Rhodes who uh, she published her first novel when she was 14. Um, or she wrote it when she was 14, but, I mean, it was it was out, like, when she was still a teenager, certainly. And, I mean, she's still only, like, in her early 20s or something, I guess. But um, she's written several novels since then. So, um, I mean, it always baffles me, though. It's like, you know, how... <laughs> How does that even get into the right hands to get published? You know, if you have something that you're that was written at that age, you know. Well, like in Christopher Paolini's case, yeah. it helps if your parents run a small press, you know. Right, right. But but still, I mean, most authors, you know, it, it's funny how old you can be and still be considered a new, new young writer. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like nobody would consider someone who was forty a new young musical star. Right. But you know, people consider people who are forty a new young writer all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of wonder, you know, being being a writer, I mean, I do kind of look with envy on the sort of mass hysteria, like like that the the Beatles mm-hmm. you get, you know, and I guess I guess there's some of this to some extent, like maybe J.K. Rowling, you know, mm-hmm. or Neil Gaiman, I guess. But but I mean, most writers, even like really popular writers, you know, don't have, you know, people like throwing their underwear at them. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas even, you know, even pretty mediocre band, bands do. Right. You know, and so I wonder, you know, like, no, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years or something. I have yet to th- have anyone throw their underwear at me. <laughs> and Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> and so I just wonder, I mean, is that an immutable fact that, that musicians have screaming fans like that and, and writers generally don't? Or could the culture ever change? Yeah, I don't know. It, it really is uh, very strange, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, I mean, I, I was just at a concert um, recently and, you know, it was this you know, this group of metal bands, three different metal bands playing, you know, mostly, you know, folks will not have heard of them. But, um, you know, I mean, any concert like that you go to, I mean, everybody that's there is like, you know, so into it. And like, you know, everybody's jumping up and down and, and you know, banging their heads and, and there's people like in the mosh pit going crazy and stuff. And um, it's like, you know, could you ever imagine inspiring that kind of reaction by reading a short story or something? You know, I mean, the thing is, like, we can love something equally. Like, I mean, I could love literature and I can love short stories. I can love The Stars My Destination as much as I love any of uh, the music I listen to. But it, it's just not going to, you know, sort of inspire that kind of reaction, you know. And, and I wonder I wonder why that is. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a sort of – it's just something, something sort of hardwired into, into people that, you know, like we respond to music in this, you know, sort of – different way you know i mean i guess because you know, can sort of feel the beat and, and and that kind of stuff but um i don't know it, it has something that, i mean because because all throughout human history i mean you know people have sort of treated music in this different way you know incorporating it into sort of tribal rituals and whatnot so i, I don't know it's a kind of an unusual um relationship we have with music uh so so recently you know i i was i was talking to john and i said you know do you know do you know this thing pandora radio mm-hmm. and he's like oh my god you're so lame <laughs> and i had flashbacks to sixth grade <laughs> and then i had to confess actually my mom had told me about this <laughs> um but yeah if, if anyone is as lame as me and doesn't know what it is it's 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 like this website you go to and you give it a song that you like and it just starts playing kind of a custom-made radio station for you with songs that are similar to that song uh which is which is really cool um and so actually I, I was thinking it would be really i would really like it if someone would make something like this for short stories uh, mm. john and i were talking about this a little bit but you know, you would give it a short story that you like, and it would just pop up, you know, or maybe even like, like sort of in podcast format that, you know, say you, you commuted to work every morning, 
And so you would give it a short story you liked and it would give you a, a story that you could listen to on your commute and then you would come home at the end of the day and tell it, you know, whether or not you liked that story and it would sort of customize it to your tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be that would be really cool, although, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, um, one of the ways Pandora analyzes music is it sort of it analyzes it on some sort of structural level where because like if you if you ask it like, well, why did you recommend this to me? It has some sort of like nonsensical sounding explanations like, you know, um, like if you're a musical, if you're a music geek or whatever, maybe it makes sense to you. But like to a normal person like me or like a lay person, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but it sort of talks about like syncopation and all this all kind of stuff. And it's like, OK, well, fine, whatever. Um, but it would be really interesting if they could develop sort of an algorithm to to do that with short stories where it's not just relying on you know pure feedback by saying okay well people who like this also like this um if it, it could actually analyze the structure of a story or something and somehow make a recommendation based on that um now that would be something um no but so i mean yeah no pandora is great i mean i actually uh, even if you like you know sort of obscure stuff like i do i mean and you know if there's any hardcore metal fans out there a lot of them will probably be like oh man what you like isn't obscure like, <laughs> i i know this stuff from like the 80s man that like you know i you only, you only get you can only get on vinyl and uh, you can only get it by trading with somebody and you know um i mean because like if you read any metal reviews it's like they're they're full of that they're like all full of uh sort of making references to bands i've never heard of and like they're comparing it to some band or they're saying that this band that i've never heard of did this same thing so much better like 20 years ago and i'm like okay this doesn't help me um but uh but yeah so pandora actually it does great for sort of all types of music and i i found a lot of stuff um that i like because of that and uh last fm is kind of a similar thing where you can sort of make a it can build a radio station for you sort of based on like one song and uh and the and the libraries are both of these things are, are quite extensive so i mean you can you can discover a lot of new stuff um just if you, if you like if you really like a particular band you can discover a lot of stuff that's sort of similar to it and uh i find it very valuable um i just the only thing i wanted to mention that we haven't gotten to is uh, i just wanted to there's a uh, an artist called mc chris i really like who writes a lot of sort of geeky kinds of music um the first song of his i heard is called fett's vet and it's you know written from the point of view of boba fett from star wars and it's it's very uh catchy and crude mm-hmm. um he also song has a song called nerd girl where girl was spelled g-r-r-l oh uh, well the, the name of that artist just reminded me that you know there's a guy named mc front a lot who you know we should certainly mention i mean he's sort of a. Uh, uh, he's a pioneer of what they call nerdcore uh, rap, and uh, there's actually a really good uh, documentary called Nerdcore Rising. Which, like, if you've never listened to MC Front a lot and you're kind of curious about him, you can check that out. Um, it's on, like, you can stream it for free on Netflix if you're a Netflix subscriber. Otherwise, I would just uh, like we should have mentioned Death Clock, uh, Metacalyp- uh, uh, Metalocalypse, or however the hell you say that. <laughs> you know, it's like Metal Apocalypse and combined into one word. Um, but, uh, you know, it's this cartoon that runs on Cartoon Network, and uh, it's about a fake metal band called Death Clock, which uh, has, like, supernatural powers to some degree, and, they're, and they have legions of fans. They're m- much more popular than any death metal band would ever be in real life, obviously. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, certainly very geeky and um, so relevant to this topic. But uh, um, Oh, and otherwise, uh, like, if, if you're just sort of a, a geek and you're interested in documentaries, um, uh, there's, a, there's a good one on metal called Metal Hen- a Headbanger's Journey. Um, and it's sort of like an anthropological look at metal fans and the evolution of metal. So, like, even if you just you're kind of curious about a subculture, in this case, metal, like it, it's really interesting. And uh, I mean, I, those are always the kind of documentaries I really enjoy are ones that explore different subcultures. And uh, in this case, I'm, I was already intimately familiar with it. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting if you don't know anything about it. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on Podcasts, and then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy Episode 16 and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Naomi Novik, author of the Temeraire series about a fantasy version of the Napoleonic Wars in which dragons are real. The series has been optioned by none other than Peter Jackson, director of Lord of the Rings. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarcurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspin 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.